Chapter 9 of the Boy Scouts of the Battle of Saratoga. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Boy Scouts of the Battle of Saratoga by Herbert Carter. Chapter 9 Unfurling the Flag. After traveling a mile or two, the young scouts came to a break in the forest where the big trees gave place to low bushes covered with wild berries. Here is our breakfast, Wade said, helping himself to the sweet, delicious fruit. Joe followed his example, and not until their keen appetites were somewhat appeased did the boys resume their journey. I don't suppose blueberries are very lasting, Joe muttered as they went on, but they are better than nothing. They'll last until we get something more substantial, his companion replied, as he turned sharply into a rough cart path. Where does this lead to? Joe asked. I don't know any more than you do, was the answer, but it will bring us to a settlement of some kind where we can get help. What if the owner is a Tory? There will be Tories, was the decisive response. We need food, arms, and clothes, and some friend or foe must furnish them. Latham was evidently fast approaching a desperate mood. Before many moments they arrived at a cultivated field, and saw below them a valley of considerable size, in which were a large house, barns, cabins, and other outbuildings. Quite a place, Blade exclaimed as he and his comrade halted. Yes, and whoever lives there ought to be able to furnish us with everything we need. But how are we going to find out whether the people are for the colonies or the king? By those chaps there, was the reply, and the speaker pointed to two small boys, who, with baskets on their arms, had just clambered over a wall farther down the hillside. They are going burying. Draw back so they can't see you till they get here. We don't want to scare them to death. The young scouts drew back from the brink of the slope until hidden from view of the approaching lads, and waited. Five minutes later the youngsters came in sight, but were so busy wrangling over some manner as not to take heed of the half-clad strangers until almost upon them. Then their first inclination was to run away, but under the assurance of late that they would in no way be harmed, the children drew nearer, staring with wondering eyes at the sorry objects they beheld. Who lives down there? Joe asked. Father, the owner of the boys replied. Yes, but what is his name? Hiram Legate. The scouts looked at each other in dismay an instant. Then Late asked, Have you a brother, Ira? Yes, but he's serving the king, the younger lad said proudly. Is your father at home? No, the other boy replied, evidently eager to impart information as well as his brother. He's gone to Oswego to see Colonel St. Leger. He's going to show him the way down here so he can lick the rebels. I understand, the tall scout said grimly. Who is at home? Ma and grandmother, Lucy, Jane, Hiram, and me, the lad explained. And grandpa, added the younger boy quickly. Yeah, and Grandpa was the prompt assent. I forgot him. He's away so much. It would have been well for the questioner if he had asked more about Grandpa, but another matter seemed more important just then. I wonder if we can get some old clothes down there, he asked. And something to eat, Joe added, perhaps because he thought that was fully as important. I reckon so, both boys replied. Ma's awful good to the poor. The scouts laughed. That fits us, Joe cried, and they started down the slope almost on the run. They arrived at the big barn first, and entered it to find a negro at work. 
He stared at them a moment in amazement, and then asked gruffly, Who be ye? What ye doing here? We were coming up the river last night, and our boat capsized, Lay explained. Can't you go to the house and get us some clothes and food? Tell Mistress Legate we know Ira, who was with General Burgoyne. After a little persuasion, the servant went off with their message. He was absent some time, but finally appeared with his arms full of old clothing. Mrs. says ye are to get into these, and then come to the house, he said. She wants to talk with you. The boys put on the garments, finding that they fitted fairly well, and then, conducted by the negro, went to the dwelling. Showing them into the living room, the colored man said curtly, Sit down. Mrs. will be here soon. Five minutes later, a woman of about forty years entered, and with a smile said, Caesar tells me you are friends of my eldest son, Ira, who is with General Burgoyne. May I ask your names? Her visitors told her in turn. Latham Wentworth and Joseph Fisher, she repeated. I don't recall the names. That is, I don't recollect that Ira ever spoke of you. How long have you known my son? Only a few weeks, Lane answered. We met him first up at Lake Champlain, while he was waiting for the army to arrive. We work under him, Joe added. Then a bright thought came to his mind. He carries an iron cross that can be taken apart, so he can hide his papers in it, he continued. He shows it to the Indians, and they let him come and go among them. I know now that you are indeed his friends, she cried joyously, for I gave him that cross myself. It is an heirloom in our family. But how do you happen to be here? Caesar said you were capsized on the river. We would not tell everyone, good Mistress Legate, Late said in a low but significant tone, but we do not mind telling you that we are sent up country on a special mission. She nodded her head in a way that indicated she understood him, and said, Please come with me. She led them out into a great hall, where on a rack of deer horns were several rifles and fallen pieces. Seeing that her visitors noticed the arms, she said as they passed, We have quite an arsenal. It is because all our men folks are fond of gunning. My husband, Ira, Grandpa, and even the younger boys have their own favorite weapons. Coming to the great staircase, they ascended and entered a large chamber, where, sprout on the bed, were two costly hunting suits, and beside it two pairs of hunting boots, scarcely more. I must apologize for sending those old garments out to you, she said. They might do for strangers, but not for friends of my boys. Those on the bed are much more suitable, and by the time you have put them on, breakfast will be ready. And she left them to themselves. We shan't know ourselves, Joe cried as he began to put on the finer garments. No, and it's all due to that happy thought of yours regarding the Iron Cross. What do you suppose she'd say if she knew our Ira wasn't her Ira? Hush, his comrade cautioned. Someone is going down the hall and might hear you. But I do feel a little shamed to impose on so fine a woman as Mistress Legate seems to be. I don't know about that, was the low reply. One enemy robs us. Another makes it good. Sort of evens up things, it appears to me. Though I confess I wish it was Master Legate we were imposing on, instead of his wife. A bell now rang loudly at the foot of the stairs, and, taking it for the signal to come to breakfast, the young scouts hastened down to the lower hall where they found their hostess waiting. She led them into a large dining room, saying, Sit down, and Matilda will wait on you. I shall have to ask you to excuse me for a while, as I have some household duties that must be attended to. After thus speaking, she left the apartment by another door, and in another moment a negress came in to attend to their needs. Fried chicken, vegetables, bread, pie, cheese, 
and coffee were furnished them in abundance by the waitress who seemed delighted at their enormous appetites you makes me think of master ira she declared he's always mighty hungry when he's been on a long tramp at length they could eat no more and arose to leave the table when the hall door was suddenly thrown open and david daggett strode in followed by four stout negroes seize those rebels he said to the men stand still you young devils he cried to the surprised lads we're all fire and he leveled a pistol at each in another minute they were surrounded dragged from the room into the hall carried barley up the stairway and thrust into a back chamber whose windows were covered with heavy shutters securely fastened on the outside then the door was closed and locked i have you at last an exulting voice called from without you may fool sarah but you cannot fool david in the gloom the prisoners gazed into each other's faces for some time before either uttered a word then joe exclaimed i never heard of a thing like this afore late here you and me have put ourselves right into that old man's hands i reckon he's the grandpa those boys told about i reckon he is his comrade replied do you suppose they'll take these clothes from us i hope not i never had such a good suit before night came as the prisoners could tell by peering through the cracks of the window shutters will they starve us joe asked i'm as hungry as when we first came here so am i late replied i wonder if there's any way out he went from window to window examining carefully and trying the shutters in turn neither alone nor with joe's help could he move them we are here to stay he said in a despondent tone but he was mistaken about midnight a key was thrust into the lock the bolt turned back and the door opened there stood the negro they had seen at the barn in the morning with a candle in his hand come he said in a hoarse whisper they followed him down the stairs and into the dining room where they found an abundance of food on the table eat he said grimly without a word they obeyed and when their hunger was appeased he led them back to the hall in front of the rack of arms take two he directed each lad took a rifle with horn and pouch and followed him again this time through the front door into the yard leading them around to the barn he showed them two horses saddled and bridled they're yourn he announced go down that lane to the road turn to the left and you'll be at little falls for a morning here's a note from missus he thrust the paper into late's hand then the lads mounted and rode slowly away a half mile beyond the house they came to the road of which the negro had spoken turning into this they galloped along as rapidly as the rough way in darkness would permit at dawn the tiny settlement was in sight pausing to rest the panting steeds they opened and read mistress legate's letter my dear guests it began i regret greatly that my father david daggett imprisoned you he is not quite himself insists that you are rebels no persuasion of mine can convince him you are iris friends he declares he saw you come from the lines of the enemy and followed you all the way up the river i suspect your misfortunes were due to him and as far as possible make restitution caesar will fix your room so that it will look as if you made your own escape tell ira when you see him that i did all i could on your behalf for his sake your friend sarah legate look here late joe exclaimed after they had read the note these horses are going back to that woman the clothes and guns i'm willing to keep in the place of those that crazy old david burned but i won't take anything more i reckon that's the proper figure his companion said after a little thought we can send them back from the settlement it's less than forty miles to the fort and by hard walking we can fetch there before midnight can't you write a note telling her why we send the horses back 
I'm not much at writing, Joe replied, but I can fix up something. Guess we can get what's needed on ahead here. The young scouts were more fortunate than they had expected. At the falls they met a man who wanted to go down the river to his home, a few miles below Hiram Gates. He rarely consented to take the animals back and deliver their letter to the mistress. Therefore Joe, with some suggestions from late, wrote, Good Mistress Legate, we are rebels, so we send back your horses. We keep the other things because your father destroyed ours. We can't tell you how we came to know about Ira. Thank you for all you did for us. We'll be kind to the next story we meet, for your sake. Goodbye. Late and gentle. I feel better, the latter said, when the man, who was taking back the horses, had disappeared. It don't seem as though we'd imposed on that woman quite so much. I was wondering if she'd have been so kind to us had she known we were rebels, his comrade said. Howsomever, we've been pretty square with her, seeing she's a Tory. A few moments later they set out for the fort, striking off through the forest, as their custom had been, instead of following the regular trail, a fact which saved them from another encounter with David Daggett, for he, with a half-dozen servants at his heels, had come in hot pursuit. But they, ignorant of all this, tramped steadily along mile after mile, stopping but once for a brief rest, and about nine o'clock that night delivered their message to the commander of the fort, Captain Abraham Swartwout. He rubbed his hands gleefully when they told of reinforcements on the way. I can hold out until they get here. Even if St. Langer sweeps down on me with this whole force, he declared. I don't like that Indian business, though. It means burning and butchering all the way from Oswego here. So we ought to go up along the road, warning the sellers, and telling them to come here with their families for protection. We will go, the young scouts said in the same breath. General Shiler told us to remain as long as we could be of any service to you. Well, rest tonight and tomorrow, the captain replied, for you need it. Monday morning I'll send you out for the double purpose of warning the sailors and watching the movements of the redcoats. I'll arrange a set of signals by which you can let me know what is going on outside without coming into the fort. You'll run less risk of being discovered and shot down. Then he called an orderly who took them first to the mess room, where they were given supper, and then to the barracks. In an hour both were sleeping soundly. The following day the young scouts did nothing but sleep and eat, Gisley expressed it, but immediately after breakfast on Monday they went to the commander's quarters. He received them kindly and led the way to one of the bastions. From there he pointed out a tall tree on a hill opposite, asking, Do you see that big pine? Yes, sir, the lads replied. It is across the river, and likely to be beyond the lines of the enemy when they are besieging the garrison. Here are four strips of cloth, red, black, white, and green, each of which will have a different meaning when tied on the top of that tree. The white will be taken that reinforcements are close at hand. The red, that they have been discovered and are about to be attacked. The green, that they need help. The black, that they have been defeated. The red and white will tell me that the Indians are deserting the British. The red and green, that the British are about to be attacked in the rear. The red and black, that they have been defeated. While the white and green will signify that they are advancing on the fort, and the white and black that they are preparing to give up the siege. The boys repeated these instructions until they had them fixed in mind, and then Joe said, We can't see these colors in the night, Captain. We might want to signal them. These are only for the day. We will have another arrangement for the night, he replied. Can either of you hoot like an owl? Yes, both of us, White replied. Then one hoot takes the place of the white, two of the red, 
three of the green, and four of the black. From that you can make up your combinations, the officer explained. These cries are to be given from the tree, and the man stationed on this bastion will be prepared to report them promptly to me. Very well, sir. We'll do our best to keep you posted on all outside movements, Wait promised. And should anything occur that you ought to know, which can't be reported by signals, we'll bring it in to you at the risk of our lives. Let it be something very important, then, Captain Swartwout replied with a smile, after which he led the young scouts to the great gate of the fort, where he bade them Godspeed. During several days they were busy among the settlements for many miles around. In some cases their warnings were promptly heeded, and the people fled to the fort in time to escape the Indians, who in a few days were scouring the entire region in search of victims. Others delayed too long, and fell a prey to the merciless foe. Before arriving in Oswego, the young scouts themselves were compelled to turn back before the advance guard of the enemy. By exercising great caution, however, they kept just out of reach, and yet near enough to make out the movements of the enemy. One night, as they stealthily avoided a small party of Indians that had made camp on the banks of Wood Creek, the young scouts became aware that someone else was engaged in the same work as themselves. Eager to learn who he was, they followed his trail for some distance through the brush. At length, the man emerged into an open space, where the moonlight fell upon him, and with suppressed exclamations of surprise, both lads recognized their old enemy, David Daggett. I wonder what he is doing here, Joe whispered in his comrade's ear. We'll find out, Link replied in the same cautious manner. Therefore, when Daggett moved on, they kept as close to his heels as was possible with safety to themselves. Having passed the Indian camp, he walked rapidly with the air of one who knows where he is going. He's bound for the British Army, Link said, speaking scarcely above his breath. Probably he has a message of some kind. I wish we could find out what it is. Fortune soon favored them, and in a way they little expected. A half mile farther on, the old man was hailed by a picket. To the call, who goes there? he answered. A friend, and received the customary direction. Advance, friend, and give the countersign. This Master Daggett could not do, and for some time he parlayed with the guard, trying to persuade the man to allow him to pass. I am a loyal subject of the king, he cried, and have come with important news for your commander. Let me go on. But the sentinel was firm. Then the Tory grew angry. I'll show, he screamed, that you have no right to stop me. Your own commander will come to let me in. And he drew from his pocket a small silver bugle. Putting this to his lips, he sounded a few sharp, shrill notes. Twice he repeated the call, and then, restoring the instrument to his pocket, calmly folded his arms and waited. A moment later, the captain of the guard, followed by a squad of soldiers, came running down to the post where, finding the sentinel with his gun trained on an old man who stood a few rods distant with folded arms, he demanded, What does this mean? Who blew those bugle notes? Before the picket could speak, Nestor Deckett answered, I did, he said. It is a call to your commander. Step one side, please, and wait. He'll be here in a moment. More likely it was a call to the enemy, the officer cried angrily. Here, boys, seize that fellow and bring him into camp. That command will cost you your commission, young man, the old Tory said sternly. And, soldiers, unless you want to go to the guardhouse, you'd better keep your hands off. Seize him, boys. We'll find a way to put a stop to his nonsense, the officer cried. 
running forward at the head of his men. But before he could touch the old man, a stern voice in the rear cried, Let that man alone, and go back to your stations. They knew the voice and obeyed, leaving the triumphant Tory face to face with their commander and a second man in the dress of a civilian. Hello, Colonel. Hello, Hiram, was Master Daggett's salutation. I thought those bugle notes would fetch you. Why did you call, Father? the man in plain clothes asked. Because yonder numbskull wouldn't let me in, was the angry reply, and now I won't go in for anybody. If you want to hear my news, you'll have to get it here. The picket was only obeying orders, Hiram Legate said in a soothing tone. Come up to the colonel's tent. You can give us your tidings there. I won't. I won't, screamed the old man, jumping up and down. Let General Herkimer come with his 800 men and reinforce the garrison if he wants to. Let him camp at Oriskany, where he can be surprised before morning and defeated, for all of me. I would have given you the chance of your life, but you are all fools, fools, fools. Not one of you knows enough to strike a good blow for the king. I'll leave you alone, and let the rebels walk right by you. He had now worked himself into such a passion that he pulled his hair, tore his whiskers, and stamped upon the ground in a fury. It was Colonel St. Leger who pacified him. He laid his hand on the old man's arm, saying, It is men like you, Master Daggett, that I need. You must advise me. Yes, lead my troops to the place where I can destroy that Yankee force. Come with me, and we will arrange for the forced march which will be necessary if we are to reach Oriskany before sunrise. The soothing words, the gentle touch, calmed the raging man, and soon he followed the officer and his son-in-law into the lines. As the three disappeared, the young scouts arose from their hiding place and crept off down the creek. For three miles they moved in silence, and then, coming to a place where the trail emerged into another, both paused. Go and signal the fort, Wade said to his comrade in a whisper. I will warn General Herkimer, and he hastened along the trail leading southeasterly. Joe gained the great pine, and, climbing into its branches, gave the hoots which told the listening sentinel that the approaching reinforcements were to be attacked. Then he slipped to the ground, intending to follow his comrade to Oriskany, when he was seized by two Indians. A desperate struggle followed, but at length the lad succeeded in breaking away from his captors, and ran toward the fort. The report of a rifle rang out, and the fugitive spun around like a top until he fell to the ground. The lad regained his feet in an instant, however, and sped on, but his right arm hung limply by his side. I must get into the fort, he thought as he ran into the river. Crossing it, he hurried on, and ten minutes later was pounding at the great gate. The guard heard him, and called the officer of the night, when he was taken in and put under the surgeon's care. No one warned General Herkimer of the foe, and at sunrise he was on the move anxious to traverse the six miles which separated him from the waiting garrison. While passing through a dense wood, he was suddenly attacked by a heavy force of the enemy, who poured in a terrific fire from both sides, cutting down his men like swaths of grass. A terrible hand-to-hand -hand fight ensued. General Herkimer seemed to be everywhere, gallantly directing his men. At length he fell, mortally wounded. Here, boys, he called to two men near him. Pick me up and place me against yonder tree. They did so, and then, taking his pipe from his pocket, the brave commander filled and lighted it. Puffing slowly away, he directed his men in a struggle which, owing to the superior numbers of the enemy, seemed hopeless. But unexpected help was at hand, 
After Captain Swartwout heard from the lips of the wounded scout the full particulars of the proposed attack, he said, St. Leger will not come here until after that battle. I may as well have a hand in it, and, therefore, leading a hundred picked men, he hurried toward Oriskany. Falling upon the rear of the redcoats just as they were about to claim a victory, he put them to flight. Before they could realize the weakness of the reinforcements and rally again, he, with the wounded hero and the remnant of his gallant force, beat a safe retreat to the garrison. That evening he sat beside the car Joe Fisher, telling him of the events of the day. Then late did not find the general, the lad said sadly. I wonder what happened to him. I fear he fell into the hands of the British, the captain replied. Were they badly whipped? asked the lad. Not so, but that they have been able to surround the fort, the officer replied. We are hemmed in at last. Then there will be a battle here, the boy continued. It looks like it. You must have a banner, Captain, exclaimed Joe, sitting up. What do you mean? the officer asked. Eagerly the scout told him of the act of Congress, and, describing the appearance of the miniature flag he had seen, he continued. Can't we have one made, Captain Swartwout, to float from the highest bastion? We will, the commander replied. I have a tailor in the fort. He shall make it tonight under your directions, and will unfurl it at sunrise. A few moments later the tailor was at work. Sheets were cut for the white stripes, bits of scarlet cloth joined to form the red, and the blue ground for the stars was made from a cloak belonging to the captain. At sunrise, amid the cheers of the men and a salute of thirteen cannon, it was swung to the breeze from the highest staff. Colonel St. Leger saw and gazed in wonder at it for some time. Then he sent for a prisoner whom some of his Indians had captured the previous day. What does that mean? he demanded. The captive, a lad of perhaps eighteen years, looked at the floating banner and replied with a grin, That? Why, it's the flag of a new nation. With a great oath the enraged officer cried, It is the first and the last time it will ever confront a British army, for I shall carry it away with me. End of chapter 9